0: good afternoon so um, I was actually supposed to speak on this topic today and then Viji was going to speak on a similar topic next week but uh, when I was preparing I noticed that my word count I was uh, in my software that I used to prepare it tells me how many minutes whatever I written down takes and uh, if it usually if it says 25 minutes that means I'll speak for 35 minutes. Um, so this was already saying 43 minutes. I'm like, this is. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, Vijay will kindly relinquish his uh, his engagement next week so that I can continue uh, this topic. If not, we will continue it later. But today we're going to talk about biblical marriage. And You might ask the question: Why speak of marriage? For many of us, uh, growing up in churches, marriage is like an assumption. So you hear a lot of sermons about, you know, how should married couples behave and all of that. Sometimes you hear, you know, advice, you know, when are you getting married and stuff like that also. And so certainly there is a sense in which we speak a lot about marriage. But too often or very rarely do we look at why marriage. Other than assuming that marriage is an institution that is that exists, we rarely look at the biblical mandate or the biblical pattern of marriage. As we all know, February is the month of Valentine's Day, and you know gives us an opportunity to look at uh, relationships. But we are specifically looking at God's pattern and model for male and female relationships. We also recognize that we live in a culture today that has turned against marriage in general. If not in absolute denial of it, definitely in the forms of um, delayed marriage, which may have many valid reasons, but also seems to be increasingly a social preference. Multiple marriages, living together, uh, what we call common law marriage, Redefining the marriage relationship itself outside the biblical boundaries and the natural boundaries of male and female. And then uh, another thing is the idea that, uh, you know, the increasing uh, preference for married couples not to have children. We even have an acronym for it. It's called DINK, D-I-N-K, double income, no kids. Um, so what is an apologetic? An apologetic is an appeal and a defense of something. Okay? So it's an appeal for something, and it's also a defense for that same thing. It is not apologizing. Certainly, many of us, when we think of marriage, we think a lot about apologizing. If you go to premarital counseling, one of the first things they tell you is that the most important things in marriage are what? Compromise and learning how to say sorry. So there's a lot of apologizing that we seem think, we seem to think exists in marriage. You know, Elton John has written an entire song about it. It says, sorry seems to be the hardest word. So it's not apologizing for marriage, but it's an apologetic. Why marriage? What is the appeal of it? And what's the defense for marriage as the Bible says um, it should be? Now, one part of apologetics is looking at the secular uh, evidence for for the uh, goodness of something. Now, many cases we might not be able to find it, but for marriage, marriage is secularly very well defended. We may not realize it. But if you look at the studies and the statistics, married couples, especially couples who are exclusively married to one another, have higher rates of happiness Higher life satisfaction levels, higher sexes indicators, higher movement from poverty to uh, uh, higher classes of economic achievement, stability for children's success later in life, and children being foundational to the further existence of society. And this is not something that you might hear very loudly proclaimed. Again, like I said, it's culturally maybe not that uh, people are not so keen to hear it, but definitely... The public statistics, government studies exist. You can Google it. You can find it in Canada. You can find it in the U.S. So I will leave that up to you. And where governments may not publicly endorse marriage, they do it through tax policy, for example. They do it through incentives. They do it in many cases in the, uh, in the Western world when it is not possible to encourage people beyond a point to get married. They do it through immigration. If you look at the type of people that governments encourage to immigrate, you will understand their preference. So the the secular ideal of marriage is actually very well defended. The statistics exist, even though they may not proclaim it from the rooftops, it it is a foundation of government policy. But biblical marriage is a different thing. And culturally, and especially among our younger generations, who are the future of society, the tide is turning against marriage in general. And so, as a community, we are called to advocate for things that God says is good, and that includes marriage. And I was thinking about, okay, how do I I showcase an example of the cultural tide against marriage? And actually, I don't know, by God's providence, I read... I was reading uh, a list of movies that are coming out. Someone said these are the movies that are uh, going to be really important in 2020. So there's a movie coming out in December of 2020. Uh, it's a horror movie. This is the plot. It's called Vivarium. Jesse Eisenberg, who's an actor, and Imogen Poots are a regular young couple looking to buy their first daughter home together. After touring a seemingly sleepy neighborhood, wherein the realtor promises them that this home is forever, they aren't feeling it, so they decide to leave. Only they can't. They are trapped in suburban hell, forced to stay together in an endless sea of cookie-cutter houses. Eventually, a child is dropped on their doorstep, and they must raise it. It's the nightmare of any young adult on the brink of true adulthood. So now, we are having movies that take the fear of marriage and have made it into kind of like a horror story. So I thought, well, I don't need to explain any further. So culturally, the concepts that we just heard is culturally very prevalent, which is marriage is a trap that delays or denies your potential. Secondly, it says that sex is a utility or utilitarian and primarily for pleasure and not to be used exclusively in marriage between man and woman. And lastly, it says children are a hindrance toward flourishing even for married couples. Against the cultural idea of marriage, biblical marriage says that marriage is a God-ordained means of human flourishing it says that sex is a gift from God given in marriage for pleasure and for the purpose of procreation, which is a fancy word for saying having children. And then lastly, it says children are a means of God's continuing gospel promise that he did not abandon the world, but rather will redeem it and has redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. And as New Testament believers, One of the passages we read is from Ephesians. We get further encouragement that marriage is modeled on Christ's love for his bride, which is the church, which is the mystery that Paul talks about. That marriage as an institution both furthers and strengthens the mission of the church. And also, one of the things that we may not have much time to go into, but definitely talks about the gospel being able to elevate singleness and childlessness by placing our highest allegiance and intimacy and purpose with Jesus Christ. Now, due to the time that we have, both this week and next week, I will not focus on, you know, the last piece of it. I will mention it. I'll give a few examples. But on the appeal for biblical marriage, because Christian apologetics and ethics deal with the way things normally are for most people, even if people are called to other things it does not start from exceptions and justifying those, but rather it starts from the common scenarios and then makes room for other scenarios, but all of them under the purpose of living faithful Christian lives. So my focus is on, you know, when I say the things that I'm going to say, it's not to deny the validity of singleness as a gift, and we'll go into why it is a gift maybe next week or the pain of childlessness, these are things, God willing, that we can look at another time or maybe privately, but it really is to focus on the appeal for biblical marriage. So first off, it talks about the idea that marriage is a means for human flourishing. See, Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew that we read invokes God's institution of marriage at creation Before the fall, it says, God created human beings as male and female and gave them to each other. The two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus invokes what we call the covenant of marriage, which is that if God has joined two together, let man not separate. If you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and 25, we look at the passage that Jesus was referring to. It says, the word should come up on screen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is a passage that we are, many of us are very familiar with. So, let's quickly review what is happening here. You see, in the account of creation, there is many times where God says it is good. The first time God says something about His creation, where He says it is not good, is it when it comes to the loneliness of man. He says it is not good for man to be alone because man is built for relationship. He's not satisfied just by having a relationship to animals who are subordinate to him, but to appear who is fit for him. That means who's appropriate for him. And the reason for that is because the Bible specifically says that man is created in the image of God, unlike animals. Where animals have the desire to procreate, men and women have the desire also to be intimate. And in that longing for intimacy, we image the eternal love and peer relationships in the Trinity, in the triune God which we as Christians have heard and we know about. And so woman, Eve, is created for man. And what we see is that God presents her to the man. So in a sense, she's the first bride. And God is the first father who gives away the bride. And then Adam's first poem, the beginning of all art, if you think about it, at least human art, comes in this context. And then the commentary of Moses, who wrote Genesis, that this is the reason that a man shall leave father and mother and cleave or cling or hold fast to his wife becoming one flesh. And therefore it portrays something fundamental about human beings. The commentator Derek Kidner says that the naming of the animals, a scene which portrays man as king, of all his surveys, also reveals him as a social being made for fellowship, not power. Even though man is the king of everything he sees, he's made for relationship and not power. He will not live until he loves, until he gives himself away to another on his own level. So the woman is presented wholly as his partner and counterpart, nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. See, the most fundamental relationship in human society, and it will be a society because the blessing was given to them to be fruitful and multiply. The most fundamental relationship in human society is not parent and child. It's not brother or sister. It is not romantic relationships. But the relationships between husband and wife, and everything that arises out of that relationship is going to define human society, whether it be the creation of new families as the building blocks of society, or the creation of children as the future of society. Our longing for social relationship, for fellowship, is most expressly fulfilled within the boundaries of marriage, this side of heaven. And certainly, we know it is possible, like Jesus said, for some to be called to singleness, to find their fulfillment in God and Jesus Christ and in the fellowship of others. But that is often for a season for all people. But if it is permanent, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, it is a gift that is given to some only. But for the majority of human beings... Marriage is the desired intent of God, unless God has called you otherwise. So the fundamental relationship is between husband and wife. That's why in marriage passages like Proverbs and Malachi, if you read uh, some of these passages in Proverbs and in Malachi chapter 2, the wife and the husband are called each other's companions of their youth. They are personal friends, they are confidants, they are comrades, they are partner-in-arms. They are united in a way that no two other people can be united. Now the Bible doesn't say that it is the only relationship that matters. Certainly we know there's a need for friendship, there's a need for companionship, there's a need to supplement our marriage relationship with other relationships. And sometimes we you know, we know there are limits to how much we can take our relationships with our wives or our husbands. Certainly none of us would be very pleased if we discovered that Justin Trudeau shared the nuclear co- codes with his wife. He doesn't actually have nuclear codes. I think we should say Donald Trump, right? we wouldn't be, you know, the government says don't do it. But definitely, of all the relationships that exist in human society, nothing is still c- so. No two people are conjoined to each other in a way that a husband and wife is. Nobody can possibly know you at the level of the intimacy that your husband and wife will know you. The Genesis passage goes on to say that they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Who is able to see you at your most vulnerable, your most starkly bare form? other than your husband or your wife, the companion and the confidant that God has created for you. So pre-fall, this was not an issue. It was natural. But post-fall, if you read in Genesis chapter 3, all human relationships were scrambled, especially the relationship between husband and wife, where once there was true complementarity and support, There arose friction and competition where there was mutual edification and upliftment of the other person. There came the opportunity to put down and debase. And there, and we read in chapter three, where there was no shame, shame arose. It's important for us to note, though, that even post the fall, God did not abandon the marriage institution. But he reinforced it, both with his promise to Adam and Eve that through their marriage union, the seed of promise would come who would destroy the devil once and for all, and the promise of childbearing in the human line. But God also protects the marriage institution after the fall explicitly by framing it as a covenant, now the marriage note that we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is written by Moses. And Moses is writing it after the fall. And that's why Moses says, because marriage was created at the beginning of our time, this is why you should leave your, hus- uh, your father and mother and hold fast to your husband or wife. The hold fast, what does hold fast mean? Hold fast is a sign of entering into a covenant. It's most explicitly stated in a passage in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 4. Uh, This is a different context. I won't go into it. But I want you to notice what it means to hold fast. It says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. The holding fast to each other is a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is not a contract. A contract has specific um, guidelines by which that contract can be fulfilled, right? Contracts don't assume that contracts are successful. Like I, uh, as part of my daily work, I read a lot of contracts. Contracts say, if you do this, we will do that. If you go below this level, then there will be a penalty. That's what a contract is. If you... Consistently do this. This contract is null and void. That's a contract. A covenant is a commitment to be faithful. Regardless of circumstance. It's not a contract. That is why the church's historic marriage vow. Which we encourage all young people to echo or recite when they're getting married. The church's historic marriage vow is not based on love as its foundation. Now, before you pick up uh, stones uh, to throw at me, hear what I'm saying. The church's historic marriage was not based on your present love as its foundation. But rather, it says, I take you to to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold, that is the covenant, from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, To do what? To love and to cherish. Till death do us part, according to God's holy law, in the presence of God I make this vow. This is the marriage vow. The foundation of marriage is the the covenant, is the vow. The marriage covenant is a promise for the future to have and hold from this day forward. It is not a declaration of your present love. You know, many often nowadays couples like to do their own vows. This is a thing. But the reason why we encourage that you follow the traditional vow is because it symbolizes something essential about marriage. It recognizes that your present love may change. That is why it cannot be the foundation. But your commitment to be faithful in sickness and in health in richness or in poverty regardless of circumstance that is the foundation of marriage and the marriage covenant is such an emblematic covenant that it is often used in the Old Testament for God entering into his covenant with Israel in Ezekiel it says I made my wealth to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. In Jeremiah, it says that the people of Israel broke the covenant they had with the Lord, though I was their husband. In Ezekiel, you know, you know, we already read that. It says God spreads the corner of his garment over Israel and covers their nakedness. So the relationship, the covenant between Israel and God And as we already read, between the church and Jesus Christ is portrayed in marriage. The reason being, the marriage covenant is an emblem of the faithfulness of God. Marriage, post the fall, is difficult. Because the intimacy that is inherent in it between two people leads to friction and competition. And perhaps you lose your first love. But we need the reminder that it is still necessary for human flourishing. And it is a means by which we partake of the human experience as God intended, of the process of maturing and learning what it means to live and die for someone else, especially when it does not seem like it is possible or when the other person deserves it. That is the meaning of a covenant. You know, one writer um, who writes on Christian ethics, he says, destructive to the marriage, to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it the primary challenge of marriage the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married that is why it is a covenant that is why god says what two what god has joined together let man not separate Because there are enough and more reasons in the human condition for us to separate. We live in a society, right, where divorce is the norm, we know that. But increasingly we also have something called the prenuptial agreement. The prenuptial agreement is an agreement between a couple who are about to enter into marriage, which says, I love you and all that, but... If you do these, 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 these these things, there'll be a divorce and you're not entitled to my property. That is a prenuptial agreement because in a typical divorce, it's 50-50. So in a prenuptial agreement, they protect themselves from losing their property by declaring the conditions by which a divorce is valid. And that is not a covenant. A covenant recognizes that things will change a covenant recognizes that the person you marry will eventually become a stranger. That you will not recognize him or her as you might have in the past. But you are called to be faithful just as God says he was faithful to his people because he was their husband. Now, being a covenant of faithfulness, there are specific reasons that God allows for the covenant to be broken. Jesus says there are two reasons that you can negate the marriage covenant. And both of those reasons, actually in the Bible, in the New Testament, it gives two reasons. And both of those reasons are related to the concept that a covenant is a covenant of faithfulness. So the only way you can break it is by a sustained pattern of unfaithfulness. So Jesus gives one reason, which is adultery which is sexual intimacy outside the boundaries of marriage. Paul adds another reason later on in the epistles. He calls it desertion. That is someone who has abandoned his wife and thereby broken the faithfulness of the marriage covenant. And most churches today, and we agree, will say that a pattern of unrepentant domestic abuse is also a valid grounds for divorce on the basis of of desertion where the husband or the wife are not upholding their commitment to be faithful to such a degree that the covenant is essentially broken. These are the grounds on which divorce is permissible. But Jesus Christ says that for no other reason. And so what do the disciples ask him? If this be the case, then who is going to marry? This is the question that is foundational to culture today. If you tell someone, whoever you married on June 26th, 1985, it doesn't matter the circumstance in which you thought you were marrying that person. It doesn't matter what your appreciation of that person was. It didn't matter, it doesn't matter what your ignorance of that person was at that time. That you are still bound in a covenant of faithfulness to that person. And you cannot escape it or exit it. Then society says that's a trap. Then like the disciples, then who will marry? But God says... There is no more fundamental institution that is designed to, for human flourishing. To breach the covenant that God is a witness to, all marriage covenants, now we can debate whether that includes all secular marriage and you know Christian marriages, or we can all agree that definitely Christian marriages, God is a witness to the covenant. It says in Malachi chapter 2, that you abandoned the wife of her youth or the companion of your youth to whom, to which covenant I was a witness to, that is what God says. To breach God's design and God's witness of the marriage covenant invites judgment on us as covenant breakers. And the seriousness of that is because God protects the marriage institution. Because God has intended for it to be a means of human flourishing. And God's design for it is the pattern of covenant between husband and wife. You know, Elton John, uh, he wrote, sorry is the hardest word. About 10 years later, he wrote another song called Sacrifice. It talks about a marriage that is breaking down. And then if you read the lyrics, it talks about, you know, it's no sacrifice. It's, uh, it's just a word. It's, it's, you know, two hearts living in two separate worlds. What, if you read it, it's, what it's trying to say is that if you are living in two separate worlds, then to use the word sacrifice for divorce is not meaningful. It's just a word. But if you look at the, the music video for, the, for, uh, for that song, in which the meaning of that lyric has become very clear, the, the, the video shows the husband taking care of his daughter by himself. Really what they were trying to say is that it's no sacrifice for you, but it's for someone else. In this case, it is the child. We live in a culture where the entry into the marriage covenant is viewed as temporary or as optional, as a contract which needs to be validated at every point over the course of the marriage. But to recover the biblical idea of marriage is a hard thing, but it's a necessary thing. And for our men and women to understand what it means to enter into marriage, why it is given to most people to marry, is important. And next week, we'll look at a couple of other things that flows from the covenant of marriage. But definitely, maybe all endeavor to understand that the foundation of marriage was a creation, that God designed it to be a good thing so that you and I would not be lonely. And he said the person who is most fit to satisfy our loneliness is a husband or a wife, somebody of the opposite sex. And that's the way God has designed it. May we keep that in mind. May we honor our covenants as we proclaim the goodness of God's design and God's word to this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you a lot for this time. We thank you for your word a lot, which uh, can uh, sometimes be very uh, clear, but at the same time also can be very um, convicting and strict a lot. We know many times a lot that uh, our thoughts and our deeds and our minds are swayed, not by the concepts that are found in the Bible, but rather by things that we have heard and learned outside of it. So we thank you for every opportunity to return uh, to your teaching, whatever the occasion may be. We recognize that we live in a world where many of the things that you have proclaimed as good, that you have proclaimed as necessary for our flourishing, is coming under attack and is coming under questioning. So we pray a lot that in light of those, that we, uh, we learn once again why you have deemed that marriage is good, that why you have made it um, made it uh, the, the most common way of living for most people, a lot, and that we can fully appreciate what your intentions for every marriage is. But most of all, we pray a lot for our society and even us today a Lord, who are tempted to be unfaithful in many ways to our spouses, who are tempted, O Lord, to, to abandon the covenant uh, without the grounds, that you have prescribed for it. So we pray, O Lord, that there will be uh, a renewal and a reawakening of our minds to the possibilities and potential that exists in marriage. We also pray, O Lord, that you'll give us understanding and you will give us wisdom as husbands and wives to live with each other in a way that doesn't frustrate your purposes but, but, uh, but furthers your purposes for your church, for your kingdom, and for the family. So we ask, Lord, for your grace in all these things, that you be with us and bless us, and that you continue to God and watch over us. In the name of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything that is good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.